So I'm kicking off a two-week series entitled Resources Redeemed, and it's a series focused on money uh, that's going to start this morning, and then uh, the good doctor, Matthew Phillip, is going to continue and conclude it the week after uh, next Sunday. Um, Next Sunday is Testimony Sunday, which is really one of my favorite Sundays uh, of the year at Church in the City. And when I think about money, Thanksgiving and testimony are two really powerful keys for breakthrough. As uh, we rejoice in what God has done, uh, the testimonies that he's, that he's, the victories that he's won in this house, as we come together and celebrate that, I believe increase is going to come and breakthrough. And then as we give thanks, just that thing of gratitude, uh, of what we have and who we are in Christ, um, I, I believe that gives way to multiplication. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. And as he broke the bread, he gave thanks. And that that gave way to supernatural multiplication. So this morning, we're talking about money. All of us use it. There's no way to avoid um, its role in our lives and still be a productive part of society. You may have tried that, but you probably didn't last very long. So money is there. And uh, we can't avoid it. We can't avoid its role. So each of us has a relationship with money, be it good or bad. And for most of us, uh, our perception of money and its influence uh, started in our lives from a young age. Just in case you get the wrong impression about me, I just want to lower your expectations. (laughs) I'm not a a money expert. Um, I don't have degrees in finance. I'm not even a great entrepreneur. But I've been on a journey with God. I've been on an adventure with Him for the last 22 years. And I didn't bring any resources to the table. I didn't bring one cent. But 22 years ago, I surrendered and I died. And my life is now hidden with Christ and God. Colossians 3 verse 3. We heard it last week. But I partnered with a limited, limitless God. One who is fully resourced fully loaded, ready and able to bless me at every turn. And as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things get added unto us. It hasn't been a journey without challenges or trials, but that's not what we signed up for. No one told me it was going to be easy, but the overriding river flow of my life is one of victory, of rescue, and of redemption. Living with him, experiencing his peace, his joy, his love, his grace, his power, his authority, these are the true riches of the kingdom. I agree with uh, thinking about that uh, scripture that, that Paul gave us, Philippians 4 verse 11, he says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There are three things this morning that I hope to weave into my talk um, as we go. Uh, The first is divine purpose. 
The second is partnership with God. And the third is kingdom prosperity. And I think they'll kind of merge together. And as a brief introduction, I want to just zoom out and give us an aerial view, snapshots of God's plan for man as it relates to the resources that he's given us. And for the sake of time, I just want to paraphrase out of Genesis 1. We know the creation story that God spoke life into being. And God created man in his own image. And it says he blessed man. And then he said of a man, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the earth. That always just gets me fired up. And then in chapter 2, he starts to describe the the land. Uh, And he says that there was a garden there, and it was called Eden, which, by the way, means delights. And then he goes on to describe the beauty. And he says that there were lush vegetation and trees, and there was rivers running through it. And then all of a sudden, he goes below the surface, and he says that there was gold there. And he says that the gold of the land is good, and that, it's arom- that, that there's aromatic resin and onyx there. I just feel like there's something on that. And as I was reading that again, I just felt to prophesy over our city and just say, the gold of this city is good. And, and I, just, I just want to prophesy that over Chicago, that God would just begin to redeem the riches of this city for his glory. I don't know if you ever noticed that. I've read that scripture a lot, and I ne- I've never seen that before. But God is an intentional God. And this description of the garden is specific for a reason. So why did God mention the gold and onyx in the ground? These precious untapped resources below the surface. Could it be that uh, God wants man to use them and to benefit um, from them? Could it be that God hasn't changed, that there are resources available to us today that need to be redeemed and utilized for his glory? In that same chapter, it says God put man in the garden. To spend time on Facebook? No. God put man in the garden. It says God put man in the garden to work it and to take care of it. That's to cultivate it and draw out its uncut potential. Let's drill into that for a second. The word work is a bud in Hebrew, which basically means work, but that's not the only way it's translated into English. Sometimes it's translated as service. So work is service, service to God, and service to people made in His image, which is everyone. And I would say service to the earth itself. But a bud is also the same word used all over the Hebrew Bible for worship. Interesting, so work and worship are not two separate ideas, but they are joined at the hip. They are, the translation, they are two translations of the same word. It's tragic that we think of worship as a few songs on a Sunday. That is worship, of course, but in a Genesis-shaped worldview, all of life is worship. So man's first job description is to cultivate the land, to draw out its raw potential, to draw on its uncut potential, and to make something great of the resources that God has made. A redeemed view of this makes working the land a rewarding endeavor to be harnessed with man, and with man harnessed with God. 
just thinking about this recently has given me a new perspective on mundane tasks. And one of those is sweeping up the leaves, especially this time of year. So last Sunday, I was out sweeping up the leaves. I've got uh, two trees in my backyard. The one is my own. The other is my neighbor's hanging over my backyard. So instead of sweeping up the leaves begrudgingly, like I normally do, I did it last Sunday as service and as worship to God. Man, what a difference. I was just there worshiping God, sweeping up the leaves. It was like bringing joy back to the mundane. Now let's jump over to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation. Revelation 21, you don't have to go there, I'm just going to paraphrase again. Uh, John gets carried away in the spirit, and we get a sneak preview of what's coming. The new heaven and the new earth. And he describes this incredible city of God. And in chapter 21, verse 18, he says this, The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, and the fifth onyx, and it keeps going. You see that gold and onyx appearing there. Isn't that amazing that the Bible starts as a garden rich in resources, and it ends as a city where those raw materials have been harnessed for God's glory and His pleasure? Doesn't that make you feel good about living in a city? We had Terry Kruger here last week, and he was boasting about living in the country with uh, his love for country music. And uh, Sandy even called him a jumbalack the one morning, trying to say lumberjack, because he looked like a country bumpkin. But, it, but his church is called Redemption City. So I think there's something inside of him that really wants to live in a city <laughs> and not be in the country. I'm happy to be in the city. So God's original design, his intent for man, is one of him partnering with man in a garden called delight to multiply his image on the earth and build a holy city called destiny. I made up that name, destiny. I just thought it sounded nice. Needed something to just inspire you. But it is a garden called Eden, and it's a city called eternity. And that's what we're moving forward and ahead with in God. You have to wonder what it would have looked like if Adam didn't mess up in the garden. Uh, If God and man had truly partnered to build something magnificent. But thankfully, what first Adam destroyed, last Adam has restored. God sent his son Jesus to win us back and to redeem that which was stolen and broken. I remember something that happened to me in second grade when I was eight years old. I don't remember much of my second grade class, but I distinctly remember this one memory when my teacher announced that we were going to do an exercise, and she asked us to write down uh, a problem that we had, something that we were worried about at home. And then she came around, or she told us not to write our names on the piece of paper, that way no one would know who the problem belonged to. And then she came around, collected up the pieces and jumbled them up in a box. And then one by one, uh, she started pulling out the problems and offering her solution to, to them. Sounds like a really great idea, but I think teachers, if you try this at CPS, you might get sued. So Rachel Lawrence, I'm not giving you permission. 
I don't remember what anyone else wrote or what was discussed, but I just remember what I wrote and what my teacher said. And I wrote on that piece of paper, my parents don't have enough money. And it was kind of crazy looking back because I grew up in an affluent home where there was always enough. But at that time, um, it was 1986, uh, my parents had just bought a new house. There were four of us kids and my dad was driving to his dental practice when suddenly there was an explosion in, in his surgery. He was, a, he was a dentist, and his, his surgery burned to the ground. So as the eldest child at that age, I was picking up on the financial stress that was in our family, and I was feeling the influence of money even from a young age. Had my dad been caught in that explosion, my life would have been radically different. So each of you have a financial story. Perhaps you weren't as fortunate as I Perhaps your dad wasn't the provider or wasn't there for you. Perhaps your parents weren't the providers that they should have been. Our individual financial stories of lack or abundance can be the lens that we look through determining our financial futures. But something incredible happens at salvation. When the resources of heaven are redeemed on earth as it is in heaven, And so we're going to talk about some of these things this morning. I'll never forget what my teacher said. She said, you're only a child. You don't have to worry about it. Your dad will take care of you. And I remember just what assurance that gave me. So this morning, whatever, wherever you find yourself, whatever your financial situation is, I want to say that you don't have to worry, that you are a child of God And he's going to take good care of you, that you have a good dad. He's the perfect father. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. And he has invited you into the greatest adventure of your life. God will do exceedingly and abundantly more than you can hope or imagine. So divine purpose starts at salvation. And so in thinking about salvation or should I say redemption, I'm sure most of you were awake at around 11.30 p.m. on Wednesday, November 2nd, when the Cubs trudged out of the dugouts and back to the locker room to wait out the rain delay. The Cubs had blown a three-run lead, and momentum would be squarely in the Cleveland Indians' favor when they came back for the 10th inning, tied at six. The 103 games they had won during the regular season, the 3-1 deficit they had erased, the century of losses and despair was all hanging in the balance and was about to slip away. But something shifted during that 17-minute rain delay. There were no coaches, no front office types, just the players, all 25 of them, crammed into a small locker room with bright white walls and lights shining down on them their spirits running low and anxiety running high. And with his teammates around him, Jason Hayward began to speak. They say Hayward is a quiet man who prefers to let the other veterans be the vocal leaders in the clubhouse. So when he does speak, his words carry a gravity that commands full attention. And something shifted in those cubbies. When they came out for the 10th inning, there was a new spark. They were back to themselves They were playing like the champions that they are. So what did Jason Hayward say to them? 
I want to relive that moment with you when Tom Vaducey asks him that question. And you get it up there. Jason Hayward, top of the 10th thing, a rain delay. You call a team meeting. Tell me why you did it, what was said. I just had to remind them who they were. I just had to remind everybody who we are. Who these guys are, what we all come to get here. Win or lose, we never worry about that. I'm posting every day. Beginning of every day, we never worry about win or loss. We just worry about how we're going to go out there half hard to be, be right there for the guys next to us and, and not take the situation for granted. So I just had to remind them that, man. I'm, I'm proud of them. I say it all the time, but I'm proud of these guys. I just had to remind them. Jason Hayward, top of the 10th thing, a rain delay. Thanks, Kate. I just had to remind them of who they are. You hear that identity, that you're a Cubs player. So much of what happens here on a Sunday or when we gather in small groups or over coffee is we simply just remind each other of who we are. And in worshiping God, even this morning, just being reminded of who we are in Him. And in speaking about money, it's no different. We have to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. We're victorious. We are the champions of the world in Him. And it starts with knowing God. A great place to start is simply in His Word, getting to know Him, uh, getting to know who he, he is. And as we get to know who He is, we realize who we really are, that we've each been purchased at a price, that we've been given divine purpose in Him. Like Jody Ramiro said when he last visited, God wants to get what He paid for. We were created in the image of God and as image bearers of the Creator, we are being transformed more and more into His likeness to look more and more like Jesus with a mission to multiply His image on the earth. Divine purpose starts at salvation. For me, it was 22 years ago as a 16-year-old boy at boarding school when I got born again. Salvation is a supernatural transaction. It's not an act of a man's will. So Jesus pulled me out of the kingdom of darkness and brought me into his kingdom of light. And then five years later, at 21 years old, I got baptized in water and my divine purpose got kicked into high gear. There's something so powerful about water baptism because it's an act of obedience. And obedience is Christ's love language. Terry Kruger told us, that last Sunday, because Jesus said, if you obey me, if you love me, obey my commands. So baptism is an act of obedience in accordance with the word of God, an outward demonstration of an inward conviction, and for me it was powerful. Even the location was significant. A bunch of, our, a bunch of us got baptized in the ocean at a beach where I spent a lot of time surfing at a young age. And I remember, even before I knew God, formally, He began to speak to my heart while I was surfing. And I would speak back to Him. Not because I'm special, but because He loves rebels, and He loves sinners, and He goes after them. It's the grace of God that leads men to repentance. And as a young boy, even with a bad attitude and a rebellious spirit, He began to soften my heart as I experienced His creation and the ocean began to humble me. And I started to thank God for the ocean and to pray protection over my dad and my brother as we surfed together. Side note, while we're speaking about surfing, I digress. One of my heroes in my youth, around 12 years old, was a guy by the name 
of John Whittle, and he was probably 10 or 12 years older than I. He kind of looked like Johnny Depp, Depp out of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, long hair, tattoos, but he was also an aggressive guy, and he was respected for his um, fearlessness in the ocean. When the waves got big, he was a, a big wave surfer and completely fearless, and so he, he commanded high respect in the water. And there's a pecking order in the, in the ocean, so when the waves get good, if people that don't surf there arrive, the locals get very aggressive, and they try and push back. And I would see uh, this guy, John Whittle, one time punch a guy in the water, another time chase a guy up the beach, and I thought he was hardcore. And I kind of said to myself, one day I want to be like him. And then I, didn't, I went away to boarding school. I didn't see him for years. But when I came back, John Whittle had gotten radically saved. And randomly, I ended up in a connect group, and he was there with me. And when I was waiting on God um, as to whether to come to America or not, John Whittle was one of the men that spoke courage in my heart to come. And so just that picture again of redemption and in this man, that fearless uh, courage in riding big waves, God turned to uh, using him to encourage um, guys in the body younger than him. I keep talking about surfing, but let's move on. I do remember that baptism night so well. Coming up out of the warm Indian Ocean, the old man had gone down with him in his death. The new man was raised up in the fullness of life, and it was game on. He had all of me, and I had all of him. I remember running through the shallow water, and just so full of joy, and so free. And it was then that a new devotion began in my life. And it wasn't something I had achieved or strived for, like so many other things in my life. It was something that I just received, and I knew it was so valuable that it was a free gift of grace given to me by my perfect father. I knew God loved me so much because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. What a generous dad we have. This is the good news of the gospel. Terry reminded us last Sunday that we need to wake up in the morning and celebrate this every day. When we first come to God, it may seem that he's most interested in what we are doing. But there is something he is actually far more interested in. Success in God's terms is defined entirely by becoming a certain kind of person, namely by becoming more like Christ. It is a mystery of faith that we don't become like Christ by doing. Rather, we enter by faith into the reality that we are already in him and we are already like him. Increasingly, our behavior comes to reflect this reality Steve gave us that analogy a couple of weeks ago uh, that he is American. He has an American passport. He lives in America, but he doesn't sound or maybe act all the time like an American, but slowly but surely, he's becoming like that, which he already is. That's what it is for us. We are little Christ-like ones becoming more and more like that which we, are, we already are. Peter declared, we have been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but of seed that is imperishable. 1 Peter 1, 23. God has put his own eternal DNA in us, and that DNA is is producing in us the likeness of a son. We were created in his image, and this image is restored in Christ. The problem we see in the lives of many Christians is not that we've 
that we fail to set up good financial disciplines, the problem actually is that the fire in our hearts is not burning hot enough to take us anywhere significant. On the other hand, you'll immediately recognize someone who's prospering by their passion. They have a singleness of purpose, not great discipline. Success is seen in the soul that has come alive with divine purpose and single-mindedness. It's the big why behind our lives. Jesus is the reason, and his love compels us. God's divine purpose for each of us is not ultimately to obey a set of instructions, but rather his purpose is that we become like him, for imitation is the highest form of worship. More than that, he tells us that in Christ we are already like him, And therefore, our primary assignment is to pursue a relationship of abiding in him. You can read about that in 1 John 2.24. When we live with this purpose, it shapes our approach to everything and every instruction that God has given us for life. We tithe, for example, not simply because he told us to. Neither do we tithe simply because we believe it benefits us to obey God. We tithe because in doing so, We are becoming more like him, and we're partnering with God in his work on the earth. When I got water baptized, and shortly after that, baptized in the Spirit, these truths became crystal clear to me. And it was with this revelation of his grace and the generosity of a good and perfect father that I forged a financial partnership with him. Now, the best time to start tithing is when you have nothing. Trust me. I was 21 and a student who had nothing, but I was trusting for everything. Math is not my strong suit, but I know that 10% of zero equals zero. It's quite simple. God is responsible for the results. He is responsible for 100% of the provision in my life. And then he lets me keep 90%, and in return I sow 10% into the storehouse. So there is bread to eat and seed to sow. It's not his design for me to consume the bread and the seed. That would be foolish. And then as an added bonus, it speaks about in Malachi 3 that he rebukes the devourer on on our behalf. As we tithe, he rebukes the devourer on our behalf. What a good deal. And so there is this kingdom economy that doesn't operate by the standards of this world. In the natural, we see an annual harvest. A tree bears fruit every year. But in the supernatural, like we heard this morning, that picture of the river in Revelation, the tree on the river side bears fruit every month. When we partner with God, we tap into a supernatural economy of sowing and reaping, and God provides even in the year of drought. Tithing is a grace thing. Living with the revelation of our divine purpose also shapes our vision of God's blessings in our lives. Most of us expect blessings to be stuff. God wants us to expect for far more than that. He wants us to ask and expect that he would give us himself. He wants us to discover and live in the divine wisdom by which he created us. He wants us to draw out the real gold and onyx in the natural and spiritual realms, not the fool's gold. 
We were not designed for survival. We were designed for Him. We were not created to survive. We were created to shine. When we have Him, we have everything. Of course, being designed for God goes both ways. We do not have Him unless He has us. The way of kingdom prosperity is learning to step into that dance. It's yielding everything to God and fully receiving all that He is and has as He shares Himself with us. It is the way of love. The more we come to know the Father's love for us, the more we embrace a relationship where God is so much more than just the provider of our needs and wants. God's deepest desire is for mature sons and daughters that would step forward to partner with him. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the problem is not the issue. The financial trouble that you're going through is not the problem. The problem is we haven't embraced the solution. We haven't taken ownership of him. We haven't taken ownership of the victory. Jesus said, take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. That's everything. Jesus has overcome the world. Every situation, every challenge has been defeated. And he has accomplished this through the cross. And so as we talk about money, it has to be from that context of victory. Of restoration and of redemption. That, that Jesus has brought us over and into a new kingdom. And money is not evil. In fact, money is one of the most brilliant of human inventions. By assigning a value to a substance or commodity allows people to, it allows man to find a form of trade and it brings stability and vitality to a society. But money is a, is a powerful idea that binds people together and accommodates their lives. But when money is perverted from its original purpose, it does cause problems. The same tool that has the power to help has the power to harm, depending on who is wielding it and for what purpose. It creates a way of the de- for the desires and motives of a man's heart to be expressed. And we are in a season in this nation where the, pro- the prosperity that we're in is showing the waywardness of our hearts. The best and brightest of natural and global leaders are dire- directing us further down the path of greed and injustice and oppression. So the church needs to succeed where the world has failed and is, fa- is failing. So God's, work, God's heart towards us has always been one of relationship and partnership in a garden rich in resources where we partner with him to build a city. We know that man rejected God, that man did the one thing that God asked him not not to do, and man got cut off from God to work the land by the sweat of his brow. But that covenant is restored in Christ. Terry reminded us last week of that curtain of 60 feet tall, being torn from top to bottom. A God initiative. A God making his way back to us. So in closing, I want to quickly define kingdom prosperity 
and then just speak about two extremes um, on either side of that. Kingdom prosperity says there is always enough for me because I belong to God. This is something God has shown me over a number of years as I left my natural father's house uh, at 23 years old to come out to this nation. I left the safe waters of his provision and then also in launching a real estate business during the worst real estate crisis in the history of America. So I've learned these things as I've partnered with him and I've seen many financial miracles along the way, even, even last week, seeing his hand. So just to partner with him and trust with him in these things is the greatest adventure of our lives. There are two extremes that swing and take us out of kingdom prosperity. Uh, the first is poverty, and the second is mammon. Uh, you might have heard the phrase uh, poverty spirit. So there's that, the poverty spirit, and then there's the mammon spirit, um, Matt is going to pick up uh, more on the thing of mammon. Um, so I'm going to just touch on the poverty thing before we end. Uh, but mammon is not a word that we use much in our day. And in new translations, the word money and wealth, um, uh, the, the mammon's being changed to the word money or wealth. But the word mammon ne- means to p- uh, personify uh, wealth by placing our trust in it, to deify it as a god. It means to worship it. And we can see in both extremes uh, the enemy's fingerprints in that the root of both of these extremes is pride. And so in closing, I want to quickly read uh, an excerpt from Stephen De Silva's book uh, entitled Money and the Prosperous Soul. I highly recommend that book to dive deeper into these things. Uh, But let me read this over us. While poverty promotes a negative focus on self and mammon promotes a positive focus, They both lead us to focus on ourselves above God or others. As a result, both spirits work to cut us off from all that God has for us. First, they cut us off from the work of the cross. Poverty denies the cross by crushing us with condemnation and shame, convincing us that we are too broken to change. Mammon denies the cross by stuffing us with things, drowning out our hunger for forgiveness and restoration. Second, they both cut us off from our adoption as a son or daughter, and with that, our identity. Poverty keeps us as a nobody, and mammon keeps us endlessly trying to become a somebody through accumulation and achievements. Finally, they both cut us off from our purpose and legacy as prosperous souls and supernatural stewards. In drawing attention to ourselves, poverty and mammon keep us uh, from looking up and looking out. So the basic message of poverty is this, that there's never enough. And when people live long enough under this influence, uh, the message takes a personal tone. There is never enough for me because I'm not worth it. The message of lack attacks us at the deepest, deepest level of our identity, value, and purpose. Last weekend, uh, just sitting under Terry's ministry, I had just a very vivid picture of someone standing in the rain under an umbrella. And I really felt that lined up with what God has been stirring me for in the series. And then a little later on, I remember that my wife a few months ago had given that same picture, so it wasn't really mine. I'd just taken it from her. But this wouldn't be the first time that I've benefited from her or that God would have to tell me something twice. But maybe I could give it a, different, a little slightly different spin. 
How's that? So I just felt in the context of these two extremes of veering away from kingdom prosperity, the thing of poverty or the thing of mammon slowly but surely covers us. And while the rain of God wants to pour down on our lives, we block the flow and we stand outside of his provision because either we say we don't deserve it or we say that I can do it on my own. I can make my own way. And so this morning, just in talking with Chris, I really feel like God wants to break that and that the the umbrella would come down and the river would flow and the rain would just pour out upon us. So I'm going to turn over to Chris and let him facilitate that. But I just want to encourage you just to soften your hearts as God just continues what he started, even in prayer meeting this morning and through the worship.